all the way to, and there's still people showing up throughout this study, that your plans don't fail, that you are truly the king of all, over all, and um, that you use things that, I mean, honestly, if we were you, we wouldn't use, and you do things that we probably wouldn't do, and, and yet, Lord, we can trust that you are acting in perfect wisdom, you are acting in perfect faithfulness, and perfect love, that you are good. And all of those things are true because you are holy, you are perfect, you are completely other. And I just pray that as we walk through these chapters today and we see how this incredible, sovereign, glorious God interacts with a very human king um, and what it's like to trust you in a really hard places and we talk about things like prayer and we talk about things like even the inconsistencies in our own hearts, I, I just pray that your spirit would um, just speak clearly, that you make your word uh, come alive to us, and that we would um, walk in obedience and faith uh, as we seek to live these things out. We love you so very much. We thank you for Jesus, who enables us to be children of this living God. And I thank you that it is through his having already accomplished all of the things that we can now enjoy relationship with you. And we just, uh, we look to him today with so much gratitude and love in our hearts. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, I thought it might be good to start with a little recap of where we've been so far. So like just kind of a broad sweeping view of um, just the flow of thought in the entire book of Isaiah, of Isaiah so far. So we started in chapters 1 through 5, and it's in these chapters that Isaiah really sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. And he does this by exposing the guilt and rebellion of the people of Judah. There's going to be so much talk about judgment. Um, Assyria is going to do a lot of damage. Of course, Babylon's going to do ultimate damage. And so he's got to set us up, and he's got to let us know why. Why would God send such judgment on the people? And so that's kind of what he's doing in the first five chapters. What's interesting, what we saw right off the bat, is that even in the midst of all of this, it's very dark, it's very heavy, talking about the people's rebellion and talking about how God must judge their sin, Yet throughout all of those lengthy descriptions of their idolatry and the horrifying consequences that are coming their way, Isaiah is continually weaving the hope of restoration on the other side of judgment. He's continually reminding us that judgment is not going to have the final word. A restoration is going to come, and it's not just going to come for the people of Israel. It's going to come for the entire world. All right, so we have that in just the first five chapters. So then we move on into chapters 6 through 12. This is where we have the interaction with Ahaz, King Ahaz. All right. Uh, and here in these chapters, Isaiah contends that God's grace is going to triumph over the people's sin. And he's going to do that through the coming of the Davidic king. This is the section where we have those Emmanuel passages, where we have all of our favorite Christmas card passages. It's all in in this particular section 
right here. And of course, this Davidic king is going to reign not only over Judah, but of the over the entire world. And so Isaiah is always starting with Judah, and he's always broadening the scope to, to the rest of the world. So then we move into chapters 13 through 27. This is where we had all those pronouncements against all the different nations. So we kind of expanded the scope beyond Judah and, and Israel, even though they were included. Um, but, he, but he kind of targets all these different nations. And um, we kind of get this, this panoramic view. Isaiah paints the picture of one Lord reigning as one king over all of the nations. And this is where Egypt and Assyria are used to symbolize the incoming of the nations into one single people of the Lord, which in our vernacular we would call the church, right? And so we have that, I think it's um, chapter 19, where you see Egypt and Assyria is just like this mega revival that takes place, and like they become friends, and it's crazy, it's crazy, but they're, they're, they're a type, it's, it's a type of what's to come um, when God establishes his throne. Uh, and then we moved into chapters 38 or 28 through 35, which is where we um, were last week. And we kind of, we have this big panoramic view, and those chapters really zoom in. They really zoom in on the small part of Israel's history where Assyria is breathing down their necks, and Judah decides to turn to, not the Lord, but to Egypt for help. And uh, the point of that whole section is that the overthrow, the, the overthrow of Assyria, in spite of Judah's rebellion, is going to be the event that would validate all of the promises that God had made. That's how God is really going to prove himself. And Isaiah over and over and over again is like, Assyria is coming, Assyria is doing all this damage, but God, because of the covenant he has made, because of the promises he has made, he is not going to allow Assyria to overcome Jerusalem. All right, so that, all that has happened. We, we have covered all of that ground. But up to this point, as beautiful and wonderful and hopeful as Isaiah's predictions of God's deliverance has been, he's really all talk at this point, if you think about it. Uh, nobody has actually seen Assyria defeated. Nobody has actually seen these things happen, happened, uh, happen yet. The seemingly all-powerful Assyrians are still on the move. Jerusalem still has a target on her back. And so as we move into chapter 36, we are left wondering, well, did the salvation that's been promised over and over and over again, did it actually happen? Was there actually a demonstration of God's sovereignty and power that Isaiah has been talking about? Is Yahweh really the king that he claims to be? And of course, we know the answer is yes. And it's in chapters 36 through 37, and also including 38 and 39, that we really have the proof. All right, Assyria is here. And now we get to see if God's going to do what he has promised to do. All right? So let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 36, Assyria finally arrives. I'm picking up in verse 1. It says, on the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so we've got an, another king, all right, King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all of the fortified cities of Judah 
and captured them. So he's no longer just messing with the northern kingdom. He's all the way up into the southern kingdom. He is overtaking a lot of the cities in Judah, but he has not overtaken Jerusalem yet. All right? Verse 2, then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with, he did not come alone, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And the Assyrian stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shivna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. All right, let's stop right there and kind of set the stage. First notice, and you can even see it in the layout of the text, there is a noticeable difference, uh, a noticeable shift from poetry to prose in this particular, particular section. So we've had all of these poems, and now we have a narrative, all right? And this signals to us a really big transition from the first major section of the book of Isaiah, which spans chapters 1 through 35, to the second major section, which spans chapters 40 through 66. All right? And what divides these two sections, 1, in, 1 to 35 and 40 through 66, what divides them is the Babylonian invasion, captivity, and deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon. All right? Now, Isaiah doesn't describe that. He actually dies waiting for it to happen. But it's like, I think I said in your, um, the intro in your workbook, it's kind of like we get in our DeLorean at the end of chapter 39, and we time warp to chapter 40. Because in chapter 39, we're looking ahead to the Babylonian invasion. It doesn't happen until like 100 years later. But in chapter 40, the people are in Babylon. They're exiled. The worst possible thing they could ever imagine has happened. It's post judgment. And so big, big gap <laughs> between 1 through 35 and 40 through 66. And this section right here, 36 through 39, is the bridge. It's the bridge that gets you from 1 through 35 to 40 through 66. And in between, we have the Babylonian um, invasion, captivity, and exile. Quite a scene is set here, very intimidating. You have the big wig from the Assyrians, along with a massive army sent by Sennacherib himself with one mission, and that is to terrify the people living in Jerusalem. This is psychological warfare right here, is, is what we're observing. Now, notice the location in verse 2. It says that um, they were at the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Now, this should sound familiar. This is exactly where Isaiah talked to Ahaz back in chapter 7, when Ahaz was also worried about a huge military defeat. And it's where Ahaz was given the chance of a lifetime to trust God. It's where Isaiah stood there and said, it's not going to happen. Stop worrying about it. God's promise he's going to protect you. And Isaiah had to decide, or Ahaz had to decide, am I going to believe God or not? 
And now Hezekiah and the leaders of Judah are going to be given the same chance, the chance of a lifetime to trust God. Same place, same crisis of faith. Now let's go ahead and take a look at this first threat. Yes, there's more than one. He's going to give a really big threat, and he's going to come back and give another one. So let's take enemy threat number one, starting in verse 4. The royal spokesman said to them, Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this. What are you relying on? Your translation might say trusting. That's a key word. I want you to look for it as I'm reading. It's going to be repeated a lot. You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? Who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? Look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely or trust on him. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar. Let's go ahead and stop there. I'm just going to point out a few things. I think it's interesting that the king of Assyria is described as the great king. And this is interesting because it's in the context of Isaiah. And Isaiah has gone to great lengths and will continue to go to great lengths to prove to us that there's one great king. And it's not Sennacherib of Assyria, right? I mean, that's one of, if you could be like, what is the theme of Isaiah? Eh, there's, there's some options. You could give several different answers. But one of them is the fact that Yahweh is king. That's one of them. That's a big, big theme in this entire book. So that would be something that we need to take notice. It appears as though Yahweh has a rival. And notice the repetition. I pointed out a little bit of the word relying or trusting. This clues us into the real issue at hand, which wasn't political and it wasn't military. On the surface, it looked like this was a political issue. On the surface, it looked like this was a military issue. But in reality, this is a spiritual showdown. This is a spiritual issue right here. And the question the spokesman asked in verse 6 is the main question of this entire narrative. And you might even be able to argue that it's the main question of the entire book of Isaiah. And it is the question, who are you now relying on? Who are you now trusting and I really do feel like I sound like a broken record. I mean, isn't that the kind of the application every week we come together? Who are you relying on? Who are you trusting? This spokesman is very aware of how Judah has been relying on Egypt. And this is where his speech has a ring of truth to it. We, we learned last week, Egypt was a bad ally, bad deal. And the spokesman is, is playing on that. He's using that to continue to incite fear. Because by this time, they've already realized, bad deal. <laughs> and he's bringing it up again. See, Egypt couldn't help you. Egypt can't help anybody. All right, well, let's move on and see what else he has to say. Verse 8, spokesman is still speaking. He says, now make a deal with my master, 
the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? I have attacked this land to destroy it without, or sorry, have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. All right, let's stop there. A couple things to observe. (laughs) One is just the intense insult he's throwing at them. He's saying, we could give you uh, how many horses? Let's see, 2,000 horses, and you still wouldn't be able to defend yourself. You could have all the military power, and you'd still lose. I mean, that's basically what he's saying there. And verse 10 is so interesting. When he says, um, will I not destroy it with the Lord's approval? The Lord has said, attack this land. And this is where I kind of was unsure about this. And every commentary I consulted said, you know, just like today, like they had spies. They had people on the inside. Isaiah's prophecies were, I mean, public right, especially among the, the leaders of Judah would have been aware. I mean, Isaiah, how many times has he said, this is the Lord's plan. The Lord has planned it. Assyria is going to come. Assyria is going to, I mean, this is like, they got advance notice. And so, again, the spokesman is taking that information, and he is using it to try to incite fear. Like, even your God has said, we're going to come, and, and we're going to do the damage, all right? So that's what's going on there. Well, let's keep reading. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the royal spokesman, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew within the earshot of the people who are on the wall. So they're like, hey, can you, can you be a little more quiet? You know, they don't want everybody else to hear. So let's see if they honored the request. Verse 12. But the royal spokesman replied, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men who are sitting on the wall who are destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? And then the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, listen to the words of the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. All right, let's stop there because this is really significant. This is where it comes into full view that the spokesman is not just there to convey information. He is there to strike fear in the hearts of the people. And he is speaking as loudly as he could in their language. And when he says, listen to the words of the great king of Assyria, this is what the king says. This is very significant. The entire prophecy of Isaiah, we go all the way back. I think it's verse, is it verse 2? Chapter 1, verse 2 starts with the word listen. Listen. (laughs) And then if you, just a few verses beyond that, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, hear the word of the Lord. And we've seen that phrase repeated over and over and over again through the prophecy. The phrase, this is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. It's just a a, a common construct throughout the entire prophecy. And, And so we see here that the question, whom do you now trust, is inseparably linked with the question, to whom will you now listen? 
Whose word are you going to count as truth? The one true king of the entire world? Or the great king of Assyria? And this is why you might think, well, why do Christians make such a big deal out of the Bible? Well, this is why we make such a big deal out of the Bible. Because who you listen to, your source of what's true, it is inseparably linked to who you trust, who you're relying on. And so it was the same thing, it was the same thing here. Look at verse 14. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Now that's a true statement, right? There's some half-truths in here, right? That's, that's actually true. Hezekiah cannot rescue them. Verse 15. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying, the Lord will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Okay, so now we're with, with outright lies. <laughs> Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land that is just like your own land. A land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. He sure does make captivity sound pretty glamorous, doesn't he? Sign me up. I like vineyards. The enemy always makes captivity sound glamorous, right? Yeah, exactly. The contrast is like huge. It's huge. The marketing department for the forces of evil are very effective. In the previous section, the key word was rely or trust. In this section, the spokesman's speech, the key word is rescue or deliver. And what he's doing is he's presenting himself as a counterfeit rescuer. Hey, you trust in me, and I am going to give you the, the, the it's going to be a place like this. First of all, you're going to get to stay and enjoy your stuff for a while, and then when, when I do take you, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be as good as this, even, even better. And, and so who, who's going to be a rescuer? Because he's claiming that he could be a rescuer as well. He's saying, Hezekiah can't rescue you, God can't rescue you, but I can. I can rescue, right? So it's a showdown. It's a showdown of rescuers here. Well, look at verse 18. He continues on. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? But they kept silent. And they didn't say anything, for the king's command was, don't answer him. Good advice. <laughs> then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him the words 
of the royal spokesman. Now, again, I said the tricky thing about this whole speech is it is full of a lot of truths. And he is not wrong about the fact that the gods of these other nations they had destroyed were not able to rescue. These are facts. And this is where it comes into view what this conflict is really all about. And it's the question of whether or not there's anything special about the God of Israel. And that's kind of, if you're familiar with, the, or, or even familiar-ish with the Old Testament, that's what almost every book is about. Is the God who reveals himself as the Holy One of Israel, as Yahweh, as creator, is there anything special about him? Because every nation has their own gods. He's not the only God. Even in our day, he's not the only God. He's not the only option. There's a lot of options. So is there anything special about this God? Is he truly the omnipotent, sovereign king of the world? Or is he like all the little g-gods of the surrounding nations who have not been able to overcome the power of the Assyrians? And so this is ultimately a question not of who has the biggest army or who has the most weapons or who has the most effective military strategies. This is a question of who serves the one true God and whether or not he is who he says he is. And the spokesman says, no way. He absolutely is not who he says he is, and there is no way he can rescue Jerusalem. My master is too powerful. And it sure does look like he's right. I mean, again, we're not talking about, like, this guy had hard evidence. Hard evidence that Jerusalem is going down, just like everybody else has. And I think sometimes in my mind, I just really believe that when the enemy comes with a message, I'm going to recognize it as the enemy. I'm just going to instantly be like, that is false. And I sure do hope as I, I become more familiar with the truth of God's word, that is true. I can more easily over time, hopefully I'm better at recognizing a counterfeit and a falsehood today than I was 10 years ago. But we are fooling ourselves if we think that every message from the enemy is going to come across as a message from the enemy or as untrue. I mean, it's like a really valid argument. I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh, I, I would have liked to think I would have responded in such great faith and be like, well, God said. But when the guy is listing like 20 nations, he just wiped out. I don't know. And so that's where they find themselves. Well, let's look at the response. And thankfully, we have two threats. We also have two faith responses in this narrative. Chapter 37, verse 1 says, when King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went to the Lord's temple. He sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna the court secretary, and the leading priests who were covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And they said to him, this is what Hezekiah says, today is a day of great distress, rebuke, and disgrace. It is as if the children have come to the point of birth. And there was no strength to deliver them. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of the royal spokesman, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. 
All right, now if you, if you recall, and I know it seems like forever ago, but when Ahaz was faced with his crisis of faith, he turned to an alliance with Assyria. And Hezekiah had struggled as well. I don't want you to get the impression that he just instantly, his first gut response was just to go to the Lord in prayer. It wasn't. It was under his leadership that the alliance with Egypt had been sought. If you read the account of these events in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah had initially sent a massive amount of silver and gold to the king of Assyria to try to hold him off and try to prevent this from happening. So he had his, his, his first instinct was other strategies. But those have not panned out. Those plans of relying on human effort didn't work, and Hezekiah finally sees that. And so this time, he has a very different response, and he does what he probably should have done from the beginning, and he turns to the Lord. I, I think it's so fascinating, and keep your eye out as you're reading through the Bible for birthing metaphors. They are everywhere. They are everywhere. And we see another one here. He uses a birthing metaphor to express how futile their efforts have been how they had exhausted all of their resources. Egypt didn't work. Trying to buy them off didn't work. And he recognizes now that if God doesn't come through, there is no hope. And that is a really hard place to be. And I guarantee you, if we could sit and just share our stories, the majority of us in this room have been in a place like that, where it's like, if God doesn't come through, it's over. It's done. I'm done, right? It's a hard place to be, but it's also a really good place to be. It's in those back-against-the-wall 11th-hour moments that God shows up, and the beauty of him showing up then is that there's no mistaking it's him. (laughs) Like, nobody else can get the credit. But he comes through. So let's take a look at God's answer, verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah went to Isaiah. He said to them, tell your master, the Lord says this, don't be afraid because the words you have heard with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. So did God take, God took it personally. (laughs) Verse seven, I am about to put a spirit on him and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. So not only will God save Jerusalem, but he's going to kill the king of Assyria. Because in reality, God has no rivals. Right? Now at this point, you kind of think the story is going to move on. This would be a great time for the victory to be described, right? But things are never that easy, are they? I tell you what. I just turned 41 this weekend, and I told my husband, I said, you know, the biggest thing I'm learning as I get older is nothing is simple. People aren't simple. Circumstances aren't simple. Solutions aren't simple. There's not one single thing in this entire planet you can throw a Bible verse and a prayer at, and it's okay. I used to think there were some things you could throw a Bible verse and a prayer at, and they would just be okay. There's nothing. There's literally nothing on the planet. (laughs) I can't think of one example. That's how it is here. Like, you're just ready for the solution. Let's move right on. And that's what Christians do, right? He, he sought the Lord. God said, don't fear. 
and now victory, right? But that's not how it works. Before he, he sees the promise fulfilled, Hezekiah gets another threat in the form of a letter from the king of Assyria. So let's go ahead and read about that. Skip down to verse 10. We'll look at the actual contents of the letter. To say this to the king, uh, to King Hezekiah of Judah, don't let your God, on whom you rely, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem won't be handed over to the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the other countries. They had completely destroyed them. Will you be rescued? Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed rescue them? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the Edenites, and Telazar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arphad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Probably the answer there would be dead, just like you're going to be. Same general message as before, right? Look at all the other nations I've conquered. Their gods didn't save them. What makes you think your God will save you? Again, not a bad argument. There's a lot of evidence in favor of the king of Assyria. Well, let's look at the, uh, that's the second threat. Let's look at the second faith response of Hezekiah, verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, and went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And I love that just tangible, actually spreading the letter out before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. Listen, don't let anybody tell you faith is denial of reality. It is not denial of reality. Faith is looking at reality. It is true. It is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands, but... That is faith. Faith is in the butt, right? Book title. I've kidded with you guys about him and write the, the book, The Big Butts of the Bible. That'll be the byline. Faith is in the butt. It's going to be have some good cover design with that one, right? <laughs> oh, verse 19. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but made from wood and stone by human hands. So he's recognizing there, yes, the gods of all the other nations have not been able to come through, but they're not like you. And so they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. All right, so I don't think we're supposed to make too much of this, but I do think it's worth highlighting. In the first response, Hezekiah sent his men to ask Isaiah to pray for them. And here we see him going directly to the Lord and offering a prayer himself. And so 
this is a clear indication that some kind of growth has taken place in the heart of Hezekiah. He, he, is, he is learning on the job how to trust God in a deeper and deeper way. And that's how it works for us, too. We learn on the job. Now, we can come to a Bible study. We can sit in church on Sunday morning. We can read. Oh, my goodness. We are in America. So we could get Amazon can deliver any book on any spiritual growth topic anywhere to your door. Buy it today. It's probably going to be here tomorrow. Books come real fast, right? And we can read all about faith. And we can read all about spiritual growth. And we can read and study. We can read biographies. Christian heroes be inspired by their faith journeys, but faith itself is grown and developed in real life, in real trials. Can't learn it in the classroom. You can learn about it in the classroom. You can learn principles that are going to make you ready when, like, the trial comes and it's like, all right, we're going to work those faith muscles now. But, you know, it'd be like me being. <laughs> Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could read a book on working out and dieting and, like, I just read it, and then all of a sudden all my pants fit again? It doesn't work that way. I have to, like, actually go to the gym and actually lift weights and actually be sore the next day. You know, I have to actually eat grilled chicken and steamed broccoli, you know. Um, same thing with faith. Same thing with faith. And that's why, you know, our, our trials, you look at James, and he was like, consider it pure joy when you face trials. He didn't think the trials were joyful at all, but what comes from them? We, we learn and grow in our faith. And, and he's just like, you can't learn that any other way. You just can't. You can't learn it any other way. So Isaiah, Hezekiah is learning on the job how to trust God. And I love that little nugget of, of, of insight there. Now, we could spend an hour just studying his prayer. I just want to point out one thing about it, very significant. And that is how God-focused it is. It is like 80% recounting who God is. And about 20% telling God what's wrong and asking him to intervene. It's, it's very heavily distributed on God and, and pretty lightly distributed on the actual problem. And now, if your prayers are like mine kind of reversed. Mine are kind of like real problem heavy and God light. <laughs> Just like, I feel like I need to tell him about my problem. And maybe that's why I often get done praying and I don't feel any better about anything. And so a big takeaway from this passage is that all true, effective, anxiety-crushing prayer is preoccupied not with the problem but with the provider. It's preoccupied with God himself. It's in rehearsing his attributes that we attain that peace that passes all understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians. And so you're like, are you telling me I should tell God that he's sovereign? Doesn't he already know? Well, he already knows about your problem too. But by rehearsing who God is back to God, it will reorient your perspective. It just, it just, you're like, all of a sudden, you got this massive God, and you, you thought you had a massive problem, too. But, but the more you focus on his size, it's all relative, right? And so you start to see him in relation to one another. And so that's what Hezekiah is a great example for us of that. Well, let's take a look at God's answer. Verse 21, then Hezekiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. Or then Isaiah, son of Amos, 
So the Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you prayed to me about it, that's going to be a significant phrase. We're going to come back to that. The king, uh, king Sennacherib of Assyria, oh, because you prayed to me about King Sennacherib of Assyria, this is, what, this is the word of the Lord uh, that has been spoken against him. Let's see. We don't have time to read. I'll read it until verse 23. It says, Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you, who is it you have mocked and blasphemed? Against who have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes and cried? Against the Holy One of Israel. In other words, you don't understand who you've been messing with, King Sennacherib, Right? Skip down to verse 26. This is really significant. It says, have you not heard? I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass, and you have crushed fortified cities in a pile of rubble. So in other words, what he's saying there, he's like, every city that you fought and won, I let you win. I let you win. I'll skip down to verse 30. Let's see, making sure I'm not missing anything. Give me a second. All right, verse 30. Now, Isaiah shifts the focus to Hezekiah as the one being spoken to here. It says, this will be a sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows on its own, and in the second year you will eat what grows from that. But in the third year, Sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem and survivors from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. Shoot an arrow here, come before it with a shield, or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came, and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So once again, we've kind of heard this message before. Isaiah is really not saying anything new here. God is reiterating the same promise he's been communicating this whole time, that he will not allow the Assyrians to destroy Jerusalem. And tucked away in this, we have another really important insight in the nature of prayer. So it is clear, both from the past 36 chapters of Isaiah and the immediate context, that Assyria's military success and ultimate failure was planned ahead of time by God. I have a very strong, when I say sovereignty of God, ladies, I'm not like, God knew what they would choose ahead of time. No, no, providentially planned it. And nothing could have changed it, because nobody can thwart the plans of God, okay? Verse 26, he he, he says, I designed it long ago. I brought it to pass. You want to know why you had those victories? Me. I did it. I let you win. (laughs) God has just such such control over all things because he's king so that is like crystal clear what's also crystal clear based on verse 21 is that god acted and i'm quoting here because 
Hezekiah prayed to me about King Sennacherib. And so here we have the great mystery of prayer, which I have expended so many brain cells trying to figure out. <laughs> and that is the, that it is the means by which God brings his eternal plans to pass. So does God plan everything? Yes. And how does he make those plans happen? Through the prayers of his people. God's acting and humans praying are causally connected. In other words, God responds to the prayers of his people. That's how his work gets done. Is God sovereign over all things? Like sovereign, sovereign. Not one of these lightweight definitions of God being sovereign. I mean like sovereign, like John Piper, sovereign, sovereign, right? Is he sovereign over all things? Yes. Does prayer make a difference? Yes, this is one of like 20,000 examples in scripture of prayer making a difference. Do I fully understand how those things go together? No. Will I ever fully understand how those things go together? No. <laughs> Do I need to fully understand how those two things go together? No. No. Just pray. We pray. That's how the plans of God happen through the prayers of his people. Well, let's take a look at what happens next. Chapter 37, verse 36. All right. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left and returned home and lived in Nineveh. That's exactly what, Nineveh. That's exactly what the Lord had described what happened. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nish, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Serezar, struck him down with a sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son, Esarhaddon, became king in his place. So did God fulfill his promise? Yes. Yes. In just three short verses, the most powerful tyrant in the entire world is done. He's done. He's off the grid. No longer coming back. And so I will remind you once again of the truth we've drawn from the book of Isaiah week after week after week after week. And that is the fact that God's plans don't fail. They just don't. They don't. Well, we need to move on. We have like, all right, 15 minutes to cover the other two chapters. We can do it. We can do it. All right, so we're going to move on to chapter 38. We're still focused on Hezekiah, but there's a big shift here because Isaiah hits the rewind button. I bet you didn't realize that. I didn't realize it until some commentary told me. All right. He hits the rewind button, and he takes us to a scene in Hezekiah's life that actually occurred over a decade before the Assyrian invasion we just read about. So these things aren't in chronological order. Okay. Now, he puts this story here as an introduction to the second major movement of the book. I told you, when we kick off chapter 40, we're in Babylon as exiles. We got to get there somehow. Like, we got to, so far there hasn't really been a lot of talk about Babylon. We certainly don't see them as this big, huge threat that's going to wipe out Jerusalem and Judah. And so we got to somehow get there. 
And this is, this is the story that's going to get us there. Um, all right, so this part of Hezekiah's story, it's about his illness and recovery. It, it does. It accomplishes that goal perfectly. So look at verse 1 of chapter 38. It says, in those days, Hezekiah became terminally ill. And the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Set your house in order, for you are about to die. You will not recover. All right, so that, that's pretty clear. Not much to say about that. He's got a terminal illness and needs to prepare for his death, which is apparently very close at hand. Very bad news. Well, Hezekiah is going to pray again. Look at verse 2. It says, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. And he said, Please, Lord, Remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. All right, let's stop there. Um, again, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles fills in a lot more details about Hezekiah's life. On the whole, Hezekiah's self-assessment was pretty accurate. If you read the accounts of his life in those books, there was, there, there, he did a lot of really good things, really good reforms. But there were some inconsistencies, as we see at the end of chapter 39, all right? His heart was genuinely moved to the Lord, but he was not steadfast under pressure. And like David who went before him, and unlike the true and better David who would come after him, his first thoughts were always about himself. I'm so glad I'm not like that. <laughs> and again, we're going to see that really clearly at the end. So here's the really comforting thing. Hezekiah's like, will you give me more life? I'm wholehearted. Basically, I'm wonderful. I've done so many great things for you. And God doesn't correct him. <laughs> I've got it every right to correct him. Like, mm, let me tell you. Let me, I've got a few examples of how, right? But the word of the Lord that comes to uh, Isaiah isn't actually, you're not as wholehearted and faithful as you think you are. And here's this and this and this to prove it. God responds with grace and mercy. Such grace. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord God of your ancestor David says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Look, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And I will rescue you and this city from the grasp of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. And this is a sign to you from the Lord that he will do what he has promised. I am going to make the sun's shadow that goes down on the stairway of Ahaz go back by ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back by the ten steps it had descended. I would like the Lord to bring back this whole sign business. That sounds lovely. Like God makes a promise and then you have like the sun moving just to prove it to you. <laughs> All right, so God's promise is pretty, I mean, Pretty incredible, actually. He gets an extension. He gets an extension on his life. There's going to be a temporary reprieve, 15 years to be exact. And look how the promise to rescue Jerusalem is woven into the promise to extend his life. And this is where it comes into view that Isaiah is not telling us this story simply to get us better acquainted with Hezekiah. He's telling us Hezekiah's story because it's also Judah's story. The protection of Jerusalem from the Assyrians that God provided in 701 B.C. was a spectacular miracle on par with 
God giving Hezekiah 15 more years. But it was temporary. God is going to send another enemy, and this time Jerusalem will not fare so well. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed, and most of the people living in Judah are deported to Babylon. And so this story is Isaiah's very indirect, very creative, very genius way of pointing us ahead to what God has in store for Judah in the future. And this, of course, becomes more clear in chapter 39. Let's go ahead and move there, and we will bring this in for a landing. All right, so 39 verse 1. At that time, Merodach Balaudan, son of Balaudan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah since he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with the letters, and he showed the envoys his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the precious oil, and all his armory, and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his palace and all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. All right, now, we would read this, and we think, oh, how sweet. A little good. We're so glad you're better, right? Not what they're doing, okay? Uh, this is not just a we're glad you're, you're better gift. This envoy from Babylon had a hidden agenda, and that's to see if Hezekiah would play nice and join their team. And his actions say, oh, yeah, I will totally play nice and join your team, right? He shows them everything. It's like, I don't know, do you remember, I, I had this friend in elementary school who had like the best toys ever, and she knew it, and it's like you go over to her house, and it was like, look what I have, and I just got this, like the best Barbies, the best Barbie house, you know, and it was like showing all the wealth, open the fridge, she was an only child, open the fridge, and it's like every delicious thing you'd ever want, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, does little Debbie live here? I mean, right, so I kind of get the picture, he's just like, He's like, look at all this stuff. And, and Hezekiah accomplished a lot of really good things. Too. Very, a lot of wealth accumulation during his reign. And so he is showing it off. Second Chronicles gives some really interesting commentary on this. And you can turn there. It might be best just for you to listen. I need to go through it kind of fast. But in Second Chronicles 32:31, it says this. It says, when the ambassadors of Babylon's rulers were sent to Hezekiah to inquire about the miraculous sign that had happened in the land, it says, God left Hezekiah to test him and discover what was in his heart. Whoa. They're thinking, okay, what was going on there? Well, what was going on in his heart? What is God trying to sift through? What is God trying to expose? Back up a little more. In 2 Chronicles 32, verses 24 through 26. Let me read them to you. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick to the point of death, so he prayed to the Lord who spoke to him and gave him a miraculous sign. However, because his heart was proud, Hezekiah didn't respond according to the benefit that had come to him. So there was wrath on him, Judah, and Jerusalem. So that's looking big picture. The following verse zooms in to the particular to Hezekiah's individual life. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, and he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the Lord's wrath didn't come on them during Hezekiah's lifetime. It came like 100 years later. So 
I have been chewing on this all week. It's fascinating to me. His whole, this, this is a fascinating character study because of the complexity of this guy. So, so was he proud or was he humble? As I've been asking that all week, like I'm getting mixed messages here. Well, my conclusion is that he was proud, but experienced times when God intervened in order to bring about humble actions. When the Babylonians came, God chose not to intervene and let Hezekiah's pride have its way. For Hezekiah, humility appears to be something he did from time to time. But it wasn't who he was at a heart level. It wasn't what shaped his motives and desires. And I think that's a a distinction we'd all benefit from pondering a little bit. That you can be somebody who does humble things. Who who people look at your actions and say, oh, that's very humble. And yet not really be a humble person. And the second God decides to step back and be like, you know what? I'm going to send this your way. I'm going to test what's really in your heart. What's really in the heart is pride. And you know what? We're so creepy and gross. We can do those humble actions from our pride. I'm going to treat that person so well because I know they're over there watching. I'm going to get commended for it. Right? Oh, we're so gross sometimes. Like, we do that. We do that. You and I can do humble things without possessing humble hearts. And time has a way of proving the inconsistency. Time has a way of proving the inconsistency. That's Hezekiah's story. All right, well, let's finish this out. Verse 3. Then the prophet Isaiah came in. He always has to ruin the party. Isaiah comes in. King Hezekiah, he asked him, what did these men say? And where did they come to you from? And of course, this question implies concealment of agenda. And Hezekiah replied, they came to me from a distant country, from Babylon. And Isaiah asked, what have they seen in your palace? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen everything in my palace. There isn't anything in my treasuries that I didn't show them. I showed them every last Barbie doll I had. (laughs) Verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look, in the days are coming when everything, you notice the repetition, he said, I showed them everything. He said, look, the days are coming when everything, every last Barbie doll, everything in your palace And all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. If you want a little backstory on that, the book of Daniel would be your go-to. All right, so there it is. There it is. There's the transition. There's the bridge. The Babylonian invasion and exile is clearly predicted. Isaiah has officially set the stage for the rest of the book and his intense focus on salvation that's going to come in the next chapters. Now, based on what we have seen of Hezekiah so far, we might expect him at this point to pray, to plead to the Lord for mercy for his people. 
verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, it's not going to affect me. There will be peace and security during my lifetime. What a jerk. Like, that was my first, I'm not sure, so sure my word was as PG as jerk, honestly, when I first had thoughts about Hezekiah's answer right here. What a jerk. What morbid self-focus. Hezekiah accomplished a lot of really wonderful things, godly things. Again, if you go back to 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, like, it's such a mixed bag. You're like, I love this guy. Or, I don't, or do I? I mean, it's just it's so hard. It's because people are complicated. Hearts are complicated. I'm thankful the Lord can sift through all the stuff and know what's really in there because we're not really good at it. Hezekiah accomplished a lot of really wonderful things, but Isaiah leaves us with a reminder as to why God was sending Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. (laughs) Because even the best king was highly flawed. And Hezekiah needed a savior too. The king needed a king (laughs) to come and save him. And in the remaining chapters of this prophecy, we're going to meet that savior. And it's so beautiful. Like, we're, we are, I mean, it's all been good, but, like, this is what I've been waiting for. So good. All right. We made it. Any questions about these chapters before I close this in prayer? All right. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I, um, I thank you so much for this example of Hezekiah just a lot loaded in here. I feel like we could have spent several weeks on these chapters. I trust, Lord, that you have um, you've shown us what we need to see. And uh, I pray that you would, as we move on into these next chapters, where we are going to see um, Jesus in such technicolor, I mean, it's just no more subtle references, like full-on Jesus all over the place. I pray that you would now increase our awareness of our need for him. Because it's easy to be like Hezekiah and look at the span of our life and compare ourselves to other people and think, wow, we did a lot of great stuff. When in reality, our hearts are so desperately wicked and in need of salvation. And so I pray that as we move into chapters 40 through 66, we would move into them with an awareness that apart from you, we are so stinking lost and so messed up. And it's only by your grace. And it's only through the work of this suffering servant that we are saved and that we are transformed, and that we are restored, and that we become a light to the nations. And so, Lord, we just um, thank you for what you're going to show us. Thank you for what you have shown us. Help us to press on. This is hard work. It's hard work, and we're tired, and our lives are busy, and every time we sit down, someone interrupts us. And so, Lord, we are fighting for this, and I pray that you remind us often that it's worth it. 
And we just love you so very much. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, you're welcome.